Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When Joe Biden was vice president, the spoof newspaper, The Onion, liked to caricature him as avuncular but aimless. In one of its most memorable send-ups, Biden parks his 1981 Trans Am in the White House driveway. In the photoshopped pictures, he's gone full boomer, bare-chested, soaping the curves on his classic American muscle car in the spring sunshine. This baby just needs a little scrub down, Biden says. Now he's president, the jokes come less easy, and it's American democracy itself that desperately needs a shine. In 2010, Freedom House, which rates democracies, scored the US at 94 out of 100. It's since slipped 11 points. The Economist Intelligence Unit rates America's democracy behind those it helped create, Germany, Japan and South Korea. Only a fifth of Americans trust the federal government most or all of the time, according to Pew Research Centre. Can American democracy be reconditioned? This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prideau, The Economist's US editor, and each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what's the best way to fix American democracy? One of the biggest economic packages in US history passed this week without any scrutiny or input from Republicans. It's more than a decade since an act of bipartisanship in the Senate overcame the filibuster. Meanwhile, Democrats in the House have passed H.R. 1, a bill which includes measures to simplify voter registration and end gerrymandering. But it won't get through Congress as long as the Senate has the filibuster. Could a dose of reform restore America as a beacon of democracy? In this episode, we'll hear from California Congresswoman Katie Porter, who's backing the bill, and find out just how much of an outlier the filibuster is. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the US digital editor. Charlotte, what's going on in New York? Well, there's continued fallout from these various allegations brought against Governor Cuomo here, and there are calls on him to resign. He says that would be undemocratic. We'll see how that plays out in the coming weeks. Uh, how are you, though, John? We never ask you. Um, I'm so unprepared for your question. I have no answer. I mean, I think I'm I'm basically <laughs> fine. I'm trying to avoid all news about the royal family, which is proving quite difficult in the UK at the moment. But I've got through pretty much a full week already without reading a single article. And, and so I'm nearly there. How about you, Fasman? What's going on in upstate New York? Not a lot this week. Um, I don't want to turn this into a food podcast, but I will say that After my comments about mayonnaise last week, Big Mayo has sent its shock troops after me. Um, I am still standing, but it's been tough. That sounds like the making of some kind of horror movie, like The Blob, except The Mayo. Uh, I just retched. (laughs) 
We also this week have Idris Kaloun in Washington. Idris has been writing about the fight over voting laws in Washington and in states. And so we thought we'd bring him into the podcast so that he could join the panel and we could pepper him with questions. Idris, what's going on in D.C.? Oh, you know, nothing much ever really happens here. Um, I I was amused by the uh, the onion throwback from Biden. I was I've been guiltily watching this show called New Girl, um, which is set during that time. And they have this term called Bidening, which is a dating strategy in which you just hang around and hope that you get lucky, um, <laughs> which is it's amazing to, to think about how Biden has moved from the avuncular figure to the actual president now. Idris, I feel like I understand you in a new way now that I know what you're watching. Um, well, my job as your editor is partly to check that you're also doing some work uh, in addition to catching up on TV reruns. So with that in mind, Idris, you've been writing about HR1 this week. This is a bill that the House already passed last year, and it's passed again now. What does it set out to remedy? What what defects in the way voting laws are are written in America is it trying to correct? The basic defect that it's trying to correct, and this has been true of America for its entire existence, is that election laws are incredibly devolved and they allow states and localities to set their own rules in a way that historically has been used to suppress the votes of principally African-Americans. Democrats today fear that a similar effort is underway with Republicans who are incensed after thinking that Trump had his election stolen from him and are pursuing these rapid series of changes at the state level. What H.R. 1 is intended to do is to preempt these sorts of changes, and it sets in a maximal standard of voting basically across the entire country. So, for example, they would try to have universal mail-in balloting, and Democrats, when they talk about it, talk about it in existential terms as a sort of savior of American democracy before the Republican Party is able to cement uh, minoritarian rule permanently. Do you think it is a savior of American democracy? What are the good parts of the bill? I don't think it's it's quite the savior of American democracy, in part because it's very hard to game out whether expanded access to voting actually helps Republicans or Democrats. I think both sides have too much confidence in whether turnout is good for them or not. And in fact, if you look at the the history and the most recent history of voter ID laws and such and absentee balloting and, and what that does in terms of turnout, it's very hard to say that it benefits one party over the other. Um, the Actually, the, the most consequential change to the bill is its banning of partisan gerrymandering. Currently, in the current system, after every 10 years, the census allows state legislatures who are partisan to, in most states, set the boundaries for congressional elections and also their own constituencies. And that has been really, really effective at amplifying Republican support and Republican representation in states where they're getting close to 50-50 of the vote. So that, I think, is actually the most consequential part of it. But the all the voting mechanics stuff, I think there are small D democratic reasons why you'd want to do those things. But I don't necessarily think that they're in quite the existential terms that uh, that Democrats will sometimes ascribe to them. There are a lot of criticisms on the Republican side that this is not about saving democracy. This is about saving the Democratic Party. And do any of those critiques have merit? Republicans who a few years ago were arguing for universal mail-in balloting on the theory that it would increase the turnout of elderly voters and therefore improve their chances in the election are now racing to undo them. It flip-flops quite a bit. And so the electioneering measures that are contained in H.R. 1, I think, are not as clearly related to one party benefiting over another. 
there was a very interesting recent study of absentee balloting exploiting a natural experiment that happened in Texas where you compared 64-year-old turnout to 65-year-old turnout. 65-year-olds can vote by mail-in ballot with no excuse. 64-year-olds do need one. And basically found that although turnout increased, there was no real partisan benefit one way or the other. So the the argument that Democrats are aiming to federalize elections and institute a permanent Democratic majority, I think, is is not quite right. What about mail-in voting? I mean, that was obviously such a big part of the 2020 debate over access to voting. Is that something that you foresee to be consequential going forward? Was it just a blip of 2020? How important is that to uh, enfranchisement generally going forward and to the risk of fraud? There are debates within the state houses right now. Um, So a bunch of of Republican-led states are introducing measures to curtail mail-in voting. And I think if you look at the recent history, you know, people in Pennsylvania are racing to undo measures that they had put in place. In Georgia as well, Republicans are trying to undo uh, universal mail-in balloting when they had just put it in place a few years ago. The the nature of this stuff vacillates and, and what people tend to think actually encourages their party's performance tends to change over time. And one other thing to keep in mind is you know, the model that we all have when we talk about these discussions is principally African-American and Hispanic voters who might not have access to voter ID, who might not have transportation and, and have more barriers basically to getting to vote. And that we think of Republican efforts as ways of suppressing those votes. And that's quite racially and historically charged for all the reasons of, of Jim Crow and, and the rest. What's interesting is that the Trump coalition sort of mitigates that a bit. So one, Donald Trump improved his margins among African Americans and Hispanics in the first place. Two, Democrats principally won the White House because they got enough white suburbanites, especially college educated white suburbanites to vote for them. And Trump won in 2016 because he got a lot of less educated white working class voters to go for him. And if you think about what barriers to voting might do to those two populations, you can imagine that the college-educated suburbanites would be less affected by voter ID laws or other barriers, and the white working class ones would be more. So, you know, there's a real risk of self-defeating measures being put in place also. And so I I would expect that you might see a, a change in attitudes in a few years once the calculations simmer through. All right. Thanks, guys. Before we hear from one of the bill's Democratic proponents, the usual reminder, if you're not an Economist subscriber, you're missing out. Signing up is really easy, and you'll find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. As well as all of Idris's reporting, there's a special section this week on the future of shopping and our assessment of the royal drama, which I promise I will read because it's by our brilliant colleague, Emma Duncan. Economist.com slash uspod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. Right. Let's move on to talk about why HR1 will be so tricky to pass. Fasman, you've been speaking to one of the bill's main backers. Yeah. Last night, I talked to Katie Porter, who is a congresswoman from Orange County. She is, in fact, the first Democrat to ever represent her district since it was created in 1953. She was a law professor. She's very well known for her use of whiteboards during congressional questioning and for her skill at questioning. I wanted to get her thoughts on some of the most cogent objections to the bill. 
The last time we passed a major bill like this was in the wake of Watergate, um, a major scandal. And I think H.R. 1's time reflects to some degree some of people's concerns about government in the wake of Donald Trump's presidency. I think the nature of democracy is that you have to keep doing the work of shoring up the institution. Now, the Supreme Court has said that voter ID laws and felon disenfranchisement are constitutional and they've declined to weigh in on gerrymandering. Do you worry that those sections, the ones that provide a workaround for voter ID and franchise felons and and set up nonpartisan boundary commissions, that these are unconstitutional, that they may be found unconstitutional? I don't. Some of what the Supreme Court is doing is saying this is what the Constitution provides. Congress can then go beyond the Constitution and make laws. Now, going beyond the Constitution is never to be confused with violating the Constitution. So the Constitution provides for things like equal protection and, you know, it lays out the core of our democracy. What H.R. 1 does is spell out in more detail what that means and what that looks like. That, in every sense, is consistent with the Constitution. So just because the Supreme Court hasn't looked at our U.S. Constitution and found in that relatively spare document an answer to gerrymandering or an answer to voter ID doesn't mean that the Constitution restricts the Congress from taking these actions. And I think that's one of the most common misconceptions about how the legislative branch and the judicial branch fit together. Does this amount to a federalization of elections, a power grab by the federal government of powers that rightly belong to the states? Let's be clear, federal elections are about federal power. And that's what we're talking about here. So if we have states that are denying people the right to vote or conducting elections that are full of interference, um, tampered by dark money, then this is corrupting our federal election system, which in turn corrupts our federal Congress. This is, if anything, maybe the area in which the federal government has the longest standing involvement in what states do and how they do it. So there are a bunch of things that aren't directly related to voting access, like disclosure requirements, like the campaign finance plank, the public financing planks. How different would this bill look, do you think, in a Senate without a filibuster, where you could make a sort of concerted good faith effort to get four or five Republican votes. You didn't have to worry about 10. What are the parts of the bill that you think are, 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 are sort of nice to have as opposed to essential to have? Well, I think that the dark money aspect, reducing the influence of big money and dark money through things like um, creating an on, uh, upgrading our online ad disclosure. So people are very concerned about misinformation. And actually, that's a concern we've heard from both sides, right? Who's really behind these ads? Actually, both Democrats and Republicans have their own narrative about kind of who is controlling electives elections and the big money interest in either side. So I think requiring organizations to disclose their large money donors, that's actually something that should attract bipartisan support. When I ran for Congress here in Orange County, this had been a Republican area for 75 years, and this was the core of my campaign. One of the realities that we have to admit and I think a lot of elected officials don't want to admit this because it doesn't make them feel good. About one in three Americans doesn't approve of the job Congress is doing. There's a lot of distrust. And so it really benefits both parties to correct that. Cleaning up corruption, that addressing ethics, making sure we have clean and fair elections are hugely popular among Republicans 
Democrats, and particularly among independent voters that both parties try to woo. So what's next for the bill? How do you rate its chances in the Senate? Very good. And the reason I say that is H.R. 1, the For the People Act, has the support of all 50 Democratic senators, every one of them. So if we believe in having a Senate that has majority rule, then this bill should move forward and should not be the subject of a filibuster. There's probably no piece of the Democratic agenda that has more widespread support. Um, and so I'm very, very hopeful that it, that it will become law. But you've got to think it will be filibustered, right? Well, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, I think Republicans have to face the reality that filibustering this would mean filibustering a bill that was incredibly popular. They did not filibuster the COVID relief bill. You know, it's, it's budget reconciliation, so they couldn't. But there are other bills where they just make the calculation that this would just make people mad. Republican voters want this, too. And they deserve this. Every voter deserves to have confidence that their vote will be counted, that people will, there'll be fair elections, and that people will work for them when they get to Washington. Charlotte, I think we'll get to the filibuster in a little bit. But before we do, let's pause on HR1 for a while and, and its merits. The problem, as described by Idris, is pretty clear. After Donald Trump lost the election, Republicans in more than 40 states have put forward changes to voting laws, um, many of which look like an attempt to make it harder for Democrats to win power in the future. Do you think HR1, as written and passed by the House, is the right medicine? Or do you think there's a risk that even if it were to pass, it wouldn't necessarily fix those problems of trust in America's democratic system and in elections that the congresswoman pointed to? I think that HR1, if passed, probably would not solve the issues of trust because of the way it's been characterized already by one big political party. And so I think that those issues of trust will persist. That doesn't mean that it shouldn't be passed, though. I think that there is compelling evidence that states left on their own will continue to pass laws that do restrict access to voting. And to Idris's point on gerrymandering, that has huge consequences for the ability for America's democratic institutions to operate in a democratic way. Um, and the other th reason why I think it's important that HR1 move forward is because of litigation in the Supreme Court. So there are cases for the Supreme Court challenging two Arizona state laws on prohibiting anyone other than family and the post office from mailing ballots, and then also prohibiting the counting of votes cast in the wrong precinct. The first instance is what people sometimes refer to as uh, ballot harvesting. And that comes in the context of the conservative court in 2013 already having ruled that states with a history of discriminatory election law don't need to ask the Department of Justice for approval for new voting laws. That was a case, Shelby County versus Holder. And so I think that there is a Supreme Court that looks uninterested in considering challenges to state election law, that you have states that will continue to pass laws that make it harder for people to vote you have gerrymandering continuing apace. So leaving aside the question of whether H.R. 1 solves the trust problem, there is a mechanical problem that I think Congress needs to address, and H.R. 1 goes a long way to doing that. 
Whatever the merits of HR one, I think I think Congresswoman Porter was a bit too sanguine on a few points. I think first of all, there is no chance that this bill won't be filibustered, right? So Democrats need to decide where they want to have their big filibuster fight. Do they want to have it here? Do they want to have it on immigration? Do they want to do it for an infrastructure bill where maybe they have five Republican supporters anyway, and they just don't have a way to get to 60? So it almost certainly will be filibustered. And even if it isn't, even if it passed tomorrow, I expect that the bill will wind up in front of the Supreme Court for a number of reasons. I think that opponents will challenge the constitutionality of the rules around felon enfranchisement. I think they'll challenge the rules around voter ID. The Supreme Court has said that partisan gerrymandering is not a role for the courts to get involved in, so maybe that won't work. I think there's also a concern that the bill might chill political speech, that the disclosure requirements are so burdensome and so sort of oddly written that there's a risk that people may not get involved and you may have less political speech. So I'd expect those to be challenged on First Amendment grounds too. So even if the bill were to pass tomorrow, I expect it will be years before it takes effect. And as Idris points out, by then the calculations that led to its being passed will be completely different. So can I then ask you the question that John Prudhoe posed to me? Do you think that HR1 is the right vehicle for doing this? Should it move forward? There's a big problem, and HR1 is the solution that exists now. I think there's a lot in the bill that's very good. There's a lot that I would prefer to see stripped out, but it is better than allowing one of America's two political parties to restrict the franchise, as grievously as Republicans are doing at the state level. Idris, when we talked about this earlier in the week, you said your estimation was the bill was 80% good. If you had the power to rewrite it and take some things out, what's the 20% that you'd take out? Yeah, this also showed up in the stimulus bill where, for example, you know, did states really need $350 billion in aid given that the revenues didn't drop very much? In a functional uh, Congress where there's a sensible conservative opposition whose voice is heard, I mean, probably that would have gone down. I think you see a similar impulse with HR1, which is it's the solution that's been written down. And so therefore, that needs to be the thing that we pass. As far as what could be taken out. So for example, the bill right now would require states to allow this practice that people call ballot harvesting, right? It would prohibit states from barring paid political operatives to collect sealed absentee ballots and and deposit them, which doesn't to me seem like part of the sacrosanct voting rights that were part of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, for example. The ACLU has objected strongly to the disclosure rules in the bill, and the ACLU is obviously a very natural ally for Democrats on on this bill. So I don't think that they would raise those objections lightly. You know, in, in general, campaign finance reform is important, but I don't know that it needs to be married to voting rights reform in quite the same way. Democrats have started agglomerating all of their ambitions into a single piece of legislation, and there's no real winnowing impulse that's there for them to address it. I also just wanted to say, having said all the things that HR1 doesn't do right, I mean, one of the things that it would do would be to preempt things like the Georgia law, for example, that would limit early voting on Sundays, which, you know, on vote legitimacy grounds makes no sense, but is obviously a day that African Americans go to the polls straight after church. And so there are innovations that are being tried at the state level that an absentee Supreme Court or federal judges might allow that uh, HR1 is sort of designed to preempt. 
Idris, you talked to plenty of Democratic supporters of HR1 when you're doing your reporting for the piece this week, but you also spoke to lots of Republican state representatives. How would they like voting laws to change? They would like for it to be left up to them. They think that the federal government's oversight over these rules in the states is an unconstitutional reach of power. And I imagine that they would, if HR1 were to become law, they would file a lawsuit very quickly, alleging exactly that, that would eventually go between go to the Supreme Court. So in Pennsylvania, where Joe Biden very narrowly beat Donald Trump, Republicans in the state legislature have announced a sweep of election reforms that they would like to install on the theory that Democratic cities like Philadelphia and Pittsburgh had inadequate voting rules during the pandemic, and therefore massive illegitimate votes won Biden the state. And indeed, that this is a, a theory that you're seeing being pronounced all through the country in various states. One of the people I talked to for this report was a, a state representative who introduced one of these measures in Pennsylvania, a Republican named Mike Puskarek. Really, the states have been in charge of executing their elections for quite some time. I think that's important. You know, we're, we're supposed to be this grand experiment and, you know, have 50 different opportunities to make improvements, make uh, mistakes. That was really interesting to hear. But Idris, tell us about some of the other ideas that he has about what happened in 2020, because I think it helps inform his comments. I think like a lot of Republicans, he thinks that there was widespread fraud in the state. Uh, He said to me that activists had registered homeless people at 25 to 50 different addresses, that there had been more mail-in ballots received and there were eligible voters, um, something that I believe the AP labeled as misinformation when they investigated it, and that drop boxes for votes that were supposed to be monitored by cameras had had gone off. You know, there's this recurring theory, basically, that there were repeated failures in the election administration system caused because of the pandemic and sort of Democrats exploiting that to generate lots and lots of votes that um, not only I think he might subscribe to, but also 81% of Republican voters say that they think that Biden has won illegitimately. And that number appears not to be going down anytime soon. I feel duty bound to give a regular public service announcement that after the 2020 election, there was an absolute barrage of election lawsuits, all of which were tossed out by judges. And so impression that the Trump campaign gave and that many Republicans appear to have accepted that there was widespread fraud in the 2020 election. I suppose, you know, we can't prove a negative, but all we can say is there wasn't enough evidence to convince any judges that that had actually happened. Yeah. Well, the way in which American politicians often try and tweak voting laws after an election result is really unusual compared with how other democracies work. Another thing that's really anomalous about American democracy when you compare it to other countries is the supermajority in the Senate, a requirement for 60 votes to pass even routine legislation. We'll talk about that when we're back in a moment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
The Senate likes to consider itself to be the world's greatest deliberative body. But in an era of hyperpartisanship, the supermajority requirement imposed by the filibuster has impeded deliberation. For this week's Economist, our colleague Matt Steinglass, who's based in the Netherlands, has been searching for parallels. The Polish Sejm, which was the parliament of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, founded in 1572, had a rule called the Liberum Veto, which stated that any member of the parliament could say uh, at any time, nie pozwalajem, which means I do not allow it. And that would not only dissolve parliament, but it would scrap any bills that had approved, been approved uh, during the course of that parliament. And this led to a level of chaos that has probably never been seen in any other parliamentary body before. It sort of astounded foreigners. Many European languages still use the phrase Polish parliament to mean a chaotic or useless meeting. And ultimately, it contributed to the fact that the Polish uh, state was carved apart by Russia, Austria-Hungary, and Prussia in the 1790s. Uh, By that point, they basically hadn't passed any laws in about 100 years. And the authors of the Constitution were aware of this example, weren't they? Yes. Uh, America's founding fathers were uh, looking around for examples to avoid uh, things that had gone wrong in previous republics. And the Polish example served as a warning to Alexander Hamilton, who noted that because under the Articles of Confederation, they had to get a two-thirds supermajority for some kinds of bills, they had been reduced to the condition of a Polish parliament. So how much of an outlier is the Senate? You've got a piece in this week's Economist looking at supermajorities elsewhere. There don't seem to be any other legislatures in the world that require a supermajority to get routine legislation passed. Uh, In a lot of places, a supermajority is required for amendments to the Constitution. It's often two-thirds or two-thirds in both houses of a bicameral legislature, which makes sense because you want the Constitution to be harder to to change than regular legislation. But there's no place else that makes it so difficult just to get a normal law passed. The only legislature that ends up with something occasionally resembling the American filibuster is the South Korean legislature, where you also theoretically need to get 60% of the votes to uh, stop someone from talking if they insist on going on and on. And they've had a few filibusters in the past few years. It was never used until 2016, but it's getting, they're they're starting to do it uh, perhaps a couple of times a year. Uh, The difference is that in their legislature, you can filibuster until the end of a legislative session if you can keep talking for long enough. But in the next session, whatever bill you filibustered immediately comes up for a vote at the beginning of the session. So you can delay the passage of the law, but you can't stop it entirely. And Matt, the defense that you hear most often of the filibuster in the Senate is that it helps to protect minority rights. I guess that's a hard one to examine with examples from elsewhere, given that nowhere else is as strict about the filibuster as the US senators. But what's your view on that argument, having looked at supermajorities in other countries? One of the very few American admirers of the Polish Liberum veto was John Calhoun, who was the South Carolina senator who was a great defender of slavery. And he liked it for the same reason that he liked uh, the idea that individual states could nullify federal legislation, which is that it protected the privileges of whites under slavery in the South. The main point about supermajority requirements is that they protect the status quo. So whoever is benefiting from the current situation is likely to come out ahead. Idris, I was going to ask you to mount a defense of the filibuster, but I think that would be cruel. So I've got a different question for you. 
which is what do you think America would look like now without the filibuster? If the filibuster hadn't become so widely used in the 20th century, what sorts of things might be laws now that aren't laws at the moment? And how would American government function differently? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think the most obvious thing, or at least the first thing that comes to mind would be that the Affordable Care Act would probably have a public option for health insurance, because that was something that had to be stripped out in order to get it through. Eventually, it did pass a a filibuster because Democrats at the time had 60 votes in the Senate, and I doubt that they'll ever achieve that, or at least anytime soon. In terms of other priorities, you can think of immigration reform, for example, You can think about voting rights of the sort that we're discussing today. Uh, Could have been, I think, a lot tighter as well. Yeah, the couple of few I'd add to that, and I'd be interested in Charlotte and John's take on this. Gun control, I think after the school shooting in Newtown, Connecticut, you would have had universal background checks, but for the filibuster. I think about a decade ago, America would have had a proper national carbon trading scheme that fell foul of the filibuster as well. And then going back way further... Because, as you write, Idris, this week, the filibuster was used so frequently by Southern segregationists, I think it's quite plausible that America would have given political civil rights to African-Americans several decades before that actually happened without the filibuster. I think that's true. I think we'd be talking about the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act of 1954 and 55 instead of 64 and 65 without the filibuster. Yeah, I think that it's worth noting that often the filibuster doesn't have to be used. It's just the threat of the filibuster that's paralyzing, right? So with cap and trade, the cap and trade bill, there wasn't actually a filibuster against that bill. It was abandoned completely by the Senate in anticipation of the filibuster. I think there's a certain mythology and romance that's attached to the filibuster. And there are these stories that have become part of American lore of how different politicians have been able to stage a filibuster. The record, of course, being held by Strom Thurmond, who supposedly survived on diced pumpernickel and some hamburger and some orange juice. And his aides apparently set up a bucket in a closet where he could relieve himself while keeping one foot on the Senate floor if he needed to do so. But you know, what was Strom Thurmond filibustering? He was trying to stop the Civil Rights Act of 1957. And if you go back and look at the instances in which the filibuster was used, it's hard to find an instance where it was really used for good. And I think that list that you, John Prito and John Fasman, laid out of what legislation might have moved forward, if not for the filibuster, and indeed not even for the, the filibuster itself, but the threat of the filibuster, then I think that the case for keeping it um, becomes more and more wobbly. Charlotte's right. There's a false mythology of the filibuster. Today, it's not a principled stand against something. It is the mere threat of an objection without ever stepping foot on the Senate floor or speaking that is enough to basically stop a bill in its tracks. You know, you have to remember the filibuster is premised on unlimited debate, right? The minority needs to keep talking in order to debate this issue. There is no pretense of debating now. No one is interested in debating universal background checks or illegal immigration or anything like that. They just want it to stop because they can use this convenient parliamentary maneuver and that's available to them. So I think, you know, even if you read about the justifications that Democrats will give for why they want to keep the filibuster for those who are in favor of it, they, they cite these these examples and, and equate it with this sort of quasi- First Amendment sort of right to the minority to speak. But, you know, the minority isn't actually speaking. They just want the thing to go away. 
I do think uh, Joe Manchin, one of the filibuster reforms he's proposed is bringing back pain to it and making people talk. I'm skeptical that that would have too much of an effect. You know, I think there are a lot of things that Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham and Josh Hawley might dislike, but, yeah. you know, unlimited speaking time and a captive audience are not among them. I just want to take this in a slightly different direction. I think we've knocked on the head the argument that the filibuster protects minority rights because it was, as we pointed out, largely used to prevent a very large minority from gaining political rights in the 20th century. There's another argument, which is that having the filibuster, making it hard for legislation to pass, stops bad stuff from being enacted. It's like, a, you know, it's a break on lawmaking. And so all sorts of bad things that would have become law haven't become law because of the filibuster. What do you guys make of that one? One of the arguments made for why to keep the filibuster is that the current majority will not always be the majority. And what is going to happen when the shoe is on the other side of the foot? And Democrats raise this objection because they think that Republicans, if they had unified control of government, would basically be able to implement whatever policy they want. And to me, that's that's a good thing. If the people have elected a group of representatives and they've succeeded in taking unified control of Washington, then they get to implement their agenda. Um, in most developed countries in the world, for example, in Britain, parliament and the prime minister are by default of the same party. There is, you know, not that check. And America actually does have a lot of veto points embedded in this constitutional order. The Senate and the House exist, and they both have to agree. The president can veto. The Supreme Court, after Marbury v. Madison, can interject and say, no, you can't do that because it violates the Constitution. There are all these veto points throughout the American constitutional system, much more than most European countries. But the filibuster was not intended to be one of them. It's not something that the founders looked on. One, it's not something that they knew about because it didn't exist then. But two, it's not something that they thought very highly of. You know, they implemented supermajority requirements for lots of things, like changing the constitution and overriding a veto and all this other stuff. But they didn't put one in place for doing ordinary business, which is what the filibuster has evolved to become today. Yeah, I struggle to think of a compelling argument in favor of the filibuster. I struggle to think of any bad legislation it has blocked. And I agree completely with the Dries that if a party wins unified control of government, then it gets to govern. And the idea that it needs this artificial supermajority to do it is 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 nonsense. It's anti-democratic. I think something that Dries and John Prudeau and his accompanying editorial really brought out this week as well in our print edition, which is important, is this question of accountability that you see from election to election, people just blaming the other party for either being obstructionist or for failing to do something. If you have a system of government that prevents the party who's in power from actually trying to effectuate any of their ideas, there's no real accountability. First of all, there's no way to get anything done, but there's also no there's no record against which voters can credibly hold a party to account. And that is a problem. I don't think that you can have a system of government that just for decades is based on blaming the other party. Well, you sort of can in the American system because there is an asymmetry there, right? Democrats tend to be the party of activist government. Republicans tend to dislike government, believe government is ineffective. And so they pay less of an electoral cost for ineffective government. Yeah. Well, with any luck, the Senate will not go the way of the Polish parliament in the 18th century and filibuster reform will arrive soon. Before it does, I have a quiz for the three of you. The Economist first covered a Senate filibuster in 1935. Huey Long, the kingfish of Louisiana, was by then a thorn in the side of Franklin Roosevelt. His 15-hour speech 
held up the president's New Deal legislation. The paper noted that Long's populist attacks on FDR had support from a media personality and political power second only to the president himself, who was America's biggest influencer in 1935. Walter Winchell. Father Coughlin. Like, he's the Tucker of that day. Yeah, I think Idris is probably right. I would go with, um, with Coughlin. It was Father Coughlin, Ugh. the radio priest of Detroit, as The Economist called him. A Canadian Catholic, Coughlin was the first to build a mass audience on radio, a frock jog, if you like. FDR feared both Coughlin and Long. But before Long could launch a presidential bid, he was shot and killed in a dispute over gerrymandering. Long's filibuster included recipes for Louisiana specialties, notably fried oysters and pot liquor, broth containing just three ingredients. Name them. Uh, collard greens, water, and ham hocks. <laughs> I mean, That's impressive. No hesitation. It's delicious. I was going to go for a roux of some kind, so I was going to go flour, butter, and something else. Gumbo has a roux. Charlotte and I were both staying quiet. Long stipulated, do not put any kind of seasoning in the pot with them. The meat is just salty enough. <laughs> I know my place and it is definitively not in the kitchen. I'm glad the quiz had a food theme because we've had an awful lot of letters about mayonnaise since last week's episode. And since John Fasman really triggered a lot of people by suggesting that mayonnaise wasn't an appropriate accompaniment for French fries. What do you think about aioli? Is aioli okay? I've never, I'm honestly, I've never tried it. It might be fine, but I'm skeptical. Several of our Belgian listeners wrote in to say that mayonnaise is just better in Belgium. And so John Fasman and others are doing a kind of apples and pears comparison by comparing ketchup and mayonnaise in the US. It may be true that American mayonnaise is worse than Belgian mayonnaise, but I think that's only in the sense that being driven over by a truck four times is worse than being driven over by a truck once. Well, one of the great things about this podcast, of course, is the diversity of viewpoints on mayonnaise and everything else. Um, thank you, John. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Idris. Thanks. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks also to producer Laura Clark, who owes her life to fries and mayo, to Nika Rofast for the sound design, and to John Shields, our editor. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is radio at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.